what did we do last night? Uh, yeah. Let's do the thing. Oh, God. Uh, we got to do that? All right. Well, the, the Cocktail Party of Congress uh, would like to tell you that this this podcast is going to contain explicit fucking language. Yeah, for sure. Shit, uh, sure as shit, my friends. Maybe some uh, heterodoxy and uh, horrible hangovers. Yeah. Bad decisions all around. I mean, oh, God. Oh. Where's the fucking ibuprofen? Give me that. Uh, there you go, man. Oh. Well, um, uh, well, well, rest assured that... Yeah, sorry to cut you off, but rest assured that everybody who was in this room and made as many terrible choices as we did had nowhere to drive, but... Plenty no. of places to stagger. Nowhere to drive last night. No. And, uh, well, in Vino Veritas. In Vino Veritas. Yeah. Where's the fucking ibuprofen? I need grease. <laughs> bacon. <laughs> Cook up the bacon. Liberty is too precious a thing to be buried in books, Miss Saunders. Men should hold it up in front of them every single day of their lives and say, I'm free to think and to speak. My ancestors couldn't. I can. And my children will. You know, I'm a voter. Aren't you supposed to lie to me and kiss my butt? Party Congress, the only political discussion podcast to our knowledge with a three-drink minimum. I'm Dan Caves. And I'm JT Andrews. And you're going to notice something a little different, hopefully. We are, for the first time in this podcast history, in the same room together. Whee! Yep, I decided to leave my undisclosed location and move to another undisclosed location yeah it's it's probably for the best that we keep this secret i mean most of us i mean most of our listeners are probably friends of ours right now all, uh, all five of you thank so you for your for your uh listenership yeah we absolutely appreciate the fact that you uh you consistently click play whenever these come out um oh we are in a sorry state right now uh St. Patty's Day. <laughs> yeah, we're recording this on the day after St. Patrick's Day, and yeah, we we had a we had a lovely night out in our alma mater's hometown. Again, for the for the strangers who might be listening to this, we're going to make it difficult for you to figure out where that is. Except for the uh, the FBI guys that they already know. Over hey, there. oh yeah, they already know. Glad to have you listening too. I know. Hey, sometimes they say that for a podcast, it's not about how many people are listening, but who is listening. So, <laughs> fingers crossed that someone, you know, with interesting intentions might be might be right. taking this in. But we we had a little bit of fun. We did the math today we did the math and i don't want to say how much we drank we should be equal parts proud and ashamed of ourselves <laughs> yeah that, that's the best way to put it yeah of course when when you asked me to join you you sent me a message and that message read we we, 
Arra- hotel arrangements are made. We will tour Lou our way to an early grave. And that we did. Oh. Not early enough for some people, I'm sure. But hey, can't go to that grave too soon because got us a little bit of a surprise for this weekend. Mm-hmm. Extra, extra celebration. I have been admitted to law school, so this is going to be this is going to be um, a liability. I think this this podcast is uh, for any future plans that I have, but. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> Indeed. But for now, let's just enjoy the ever-loving hell out of the Cocktail Party Congress. And, and this delicious cocktail we're drinking right now. Yeah. Dan Caves, what are we drinking? Oh, well, we are currently drinking a Gin Ricky. It is uh, a nice, crisp, citrusy drink. Uh, and if you want to make it at home to join us in the drinking process and... Yes, after a night like last night, we are drinking again. Um, actually, instantly felt better. Yeah, after that, the that first drink. classic case of hair of the dog. Yeah, you know? I, I really can't imagine how you real alcoholics do it day in, day out like this. But if you want to make a gin ricky at home, you're going to want to take a highball glass or like a tumbler of some kind, fill it up with ice. You're going to want to add two parts uh, dry gin, to one part freshly squeezed lime juice into the glass and then top it all off with club soda, garnish with a lime wedge, and you, my friends, my dear listeners, have just made yourself a gin ricky. It looks like lemonade or limeade, but... Yeah, once you add the fresh lime juice, it gives... Ju- juice. Juice. It, it gives it a, a, a very cloudy, limey, like citrusy uh, hue to it. And it's, uh, this is one of those drinks that I would love after a, a night of long drinking because it's, it's easier on the stomach. <laughs> it is. Uh, and the lime juice is technically nutrition. So we can rest our laurels on that. Very true. Yeah. And hey, JT, speaking of Ricky's, <laughs> we got ourselves another email that's oh, worthy, that's worthy of reading out. And, uh, Actually, I'm going to slide my... I'm dominating so far, so I'm going to slide my phone over to you. And would you do us the honors of reading this this email? And I'm just going to say outright, uh, probably leave out the location. Uh, Yep, that that I will. Yeah, once again, we want to make it hard for you strangers to find us, but uh, take it away. All right. This... This wonderful email comes from Rick, and Rick says, Hello, gentlemen. Love the podcast. It is a great chance to listen to people slow down and put out a sensible observation or opinion on a topic and have it examined and reflected upon rather than label it in one group or another and fought over. During your American Ideals podcast, I heard the idea of liberty and justice as being inseparable. I had always viewed the two as being flags at the opposite end of a political or social arena. Dan's view that they were required to work hand-in-hand was something I had not considered. Keep up the great work. Cheers. From Rick. Cheers. Cheers, Rick. Yeah, cheers to you, Rick. Well, thank you for your kind thoughts, Rick. I'm glad that we could stimulate some uh, some new thoughts in you, and hopefully, hopefully, other listeners are having similar reactions. And um, uh, if, if you have just... any uh, if you have any emails, you know, thoughts, suggestions, or just want to yeah, this is a good... get our attention. Definitely email us at uh, cocktailpartycongress at gmail dot com. 
Yeah, we, uh, we absolutely love it when you join the conversation with us. And uh, one of our goals for your visit this weekend is to uh, is to work on our website a little bit and to you know start up a like a social media presence, maybe a Facebook page. Keep an eye out. By the time this goes live, you will have a Facebook page to go and like, and you'll have a central place where you can where you can you know jump in that may be a little more convenient than an email. Yep. But, well, Ricky and Rick, notwithstanding, we have a topic to talk about today, JT. Mm -hmm. And um, I'd like to throw it your way once again. Maybe you could give us a little preamble on what we're talking, what we're going to discuss. A preamble. Ah, I I like what you did there. (laughs) So, preamble to this, we're going to be talking about our Constitution. We're going to be talking about a lot of our, uh, the freedoms that it really guarantees us. We're going to be talking about, uh, specifically, Bill of Rights. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, we're, we're going to go through it uh, amendment by amendment. Uh, maybe not. <laughs> like, a, maybe not an episode per amendment. I mean, I, I mean, how much content can we really get out of the Third Amendment, I mean, the uh, Bordering Act? Give it about five minutes, and depending on the song and dance routine later on. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah, uh, we're gonna do a show on uh, an amendment, an amendment per show for mm-hmm. the most part. Yeah. Uh, uh, and actually, Rick's email takes us back to the American Ideals episode uh, in an interesting way because one of the things that I was thinking about going into this discussion, and something that we briefly discussed in that episode, I believe, the Ideals episode is that with every right comes an equal and requisite responsibility that must be exercised. I mean, your rights are one thing, but the way that we can have a, a functional society that is both conscious of liberty, which is the right, but also justice, or you can come up with other, other terms to fill that void, um, that really come down to the idea of responsibility that you can you can have all the rights in the world but if you're not using them responsibly then they don't really mean much and so um i think you know we can talk a little bit about right. that with yeah. with every right there is a responsibility yeah um you know you have to take ownership of uh you have to take ownership of the things that you have the right to do yeah you can't just uh, you can't just wield it around like a you know some small child that's picked up his dad's gun you know oh yeah it's um, it's uh, the, one way that yeah I mean pretty much do what you want but own the consequences thereof uh, there's one oh the it's escaping me now but it was a story that I saw of um, uh, school school children in some school district who were like the school district had banned the picking up of snow because you your children the the children may pick up a snowball and throw it at another child which is you know a a very aggressive act but this was a high school or a uh you know these were older kids these were not younger kids i think i I remember uh listening to the same piece it might have been on npr yeah uh yeah, I think I think it was a school in England. Yeah, it could that be. Did that. Yeah, it could be. 
Um, but uh, honestly, the reaction that any sane parent should have to that, and especially in a you know a liberty-loving society, would be to tell your child, pick up the snow, throw the snowball. But if you do, own the consequences. Like, let the people throw snowballs if they want. But you know that that's that, that that's something I firmly believe that, that, that you could you you can take things as far as you feel comfortable taking them, but you really need to be willing to accept the consequences. Mm-hmm. Um, well, if we're going to jump into the Bill of Rights, I figure we should just begin at the beginning. Um, of course, the Bill of Rights are the first ten amendments to our United States Constitution. They were ratified effective December 15th, 1791. They were a, uh, a bit of a reaction to... So the Constitution itself, it didn't, you know, it's a very, very direct roadmap for running a government. But there were a lot of, like, debates in the day where uh, the Federalists, who were the people who were advocating for the Constitution, um, then had to contend with the Anti-Federalists, who were really worried about uh, what limits were not placed on the government in the in the Constitution itself. And so... The result of those debates, and you can find those debates in the Anti-Federalist Papers, you know, they publish those still, uh, was the Bill of Rights. And so um, these are constraints on the government to, to make, um, you know, make things a little more, uh, you know, safe and straightforward for the common citizen, things that they can rely on. And uh, JT, why don't you go ahead and read us... Uh, yeah, the, the First Amendment to the Constitution, uh, I think we'll start We'll start from the beginning. Yep, here we go. In the beginning, uh, the First Amendment to the Constitution says, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people peacefully to assemble and to petition the government for redress of grievances. Mm. That's a pretty heavy one. I mean, there's a lot in there. Yeah. But a lot of our, uh, what we as Americans consider our fundamental rights uh, of free speech, free religion, free press, this all comes from our First Amendment. Yeah. And um, let's see. And there's a very good reason why it's the first one in the list. The big one. Yeah, it really is. Um, it's the only... Uh, the way I think about it is it's the one amendment and it precedes the one that... Okay, so it's the one amendment that gives us a roadmap for peacefully resolving disputes in... Um, not necessarily within the government, uh, but among citizens. And it necessarily comes before a future episode, the Second mm-hmm. Amendment, which is the roadmap for not so peacefully settling uh, yeah. s- settling disputes. I feel like Second Amendment's a really hot topic right now, but it is. Uh, let's not go into that in this show. Oh no, we're we're, we're going to reserve that. For, I don't I don't think I've had enough to drink. Oh no, we're going to reserve for, that for for, that for another for another episode. And if you hear that cracking Dan, sound, Dan, in the future, your coasters suck. No, it's because th- there's condensation on the glass, and if you're not careful, the the glass will pick the coaster up with it. It's a vacuum. Your coasters suck. 
should have a little divot in there, an air hole. Yeah, you would think so. But hey, this is what Walmart gives you 10 years ago. Um, yeah, so, so I think it's pretty straightforward. If we're going to talk about rights and responsibilities, uh, the first clause, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. I think that's a pretty, I think that's a pretty straightforward one if we're talking responsibility-wise. Like, don't be a dick about it. You'd think. You'd yeah. think it's very straightforward, but it's mm. not. Uh, this is something that I would love to visit on just a complete this is the first amendment is something that we could almost do several shows on and i'd love to and i think we will i think yeah. we're going to revisit the uh freedom of religion uh in a future episode but i think our focus tonight is going to be on uh free speech yeah the second clause the, sec the second clause of the first amendment everything that comes after the semicolon <laughs> <laughs> I hate semicolons so much. I don't. Once I learned how to properly use a semicolon, my life changed. In the words of Kurt Vonnegut Jr., they stand. He's, he once said of semicolons that they stand for absolutely nothing. They are literary hermaphrodites. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, Kurt, I respect you, but I, I, I don't have the juice in me to, to render a, a robust enough defense of the semicolon, but... What we do have the juice enough for is to oh, to, to put up a robust defense of freedom of speech, which itself is its own hot topic these days. I mean, we're seeing we're seeing situations where where people, especially our age and a little younger, are a little ambivalent about the very it's very utility true. of freedom of speech. Yeah, it's very true. Um, we yeah. see a lot of what we would label as hate speech coming out and people are wondering is this speech this these type of absolutely toxic thoughts mm. uh made manifest through voice are they is this protected is this protected speech yeah and uh to add to that thought is i think we're starting to have more and more of a conversation about whether speech that is whether it's honest hate speech or not, or if it is speech put out specifically to provoke some sort of reaction, whether that speech is on a different level, if, if for instance, like a provocateur, like uh, anybody remember a Milo Yiannopoulos? JT, were you familiar too much with Milo Yiannopoulos? The no. front, the, 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 the um. platinum blonde. Um, Bright, he was actually affiliated with Breitbart for a while, uh, who who has since exited the stage. But um, I don't remember. I, I'd probably recognize him. Yeah, you probably would if you did. Uh, yeah, Milo Yiannopoulos. Um, he was he was a uh, essentially a provocateur. He was going, you know, he he was a part of, and to me, a pimple on the ass of the free speech movement. Because the way he went about doing his supposed job was to just go around saying the most obnoxious and outrageous things um, from a very, like, I, I kind of bristle at the term alt-right, but, like, he, he, he is an embodiment of what is meant by alt-right. Yeah. 
Um, and he 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 said some things that eventually got him kind of pushed to the to the sidelines of the debate. But um, th- there are people like him who who I think made people begin to reconsider the utility of freedom of speech because a, a lot of this has to do with the, the the college campuses specifically. Yeah, and that's and that was exactly it. Like he 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 would go around you know booking talks like. College Republican clubs would book him and, you know, wait for the reaction from from uh, liberal and left-wing groups. It's it's a similar thing with uh, Richard Spencer. I know he was trying to go to... Oh, believe, to the extreme of Richard Spencer. I, I, I believe he was going to University of Cincinnati, uh-huh. and he was be, they were asking him to uh, pretty much pay for his own security, mm. which would have been amounted to something like $14,000... I forget the figure, yeah. Uh, but he's filing a lawsuit, you know, and it's it's like, how dare you not allow me to come speak, you know, my yeah. my white supremacist views on your campus. Um, but at the same time, you have to understand that if it's a public university, uh, if we look at especially Supreme Court cases. Uh, it's a public university. It is a public space, and therefore, the First Amendment cannot, you know, it has to apply. Mm-hmm. If it was a private institution, the private institution could do whatever they want uh, yeah. in terms of almost restricting speech. They don't. The students that go there, they can all always leave. Yeah, like, they can. They, rec- they yeah. don't have to go there. It's a private institution. They could take their money elsewhere. So yeah. it would behoove them to not do things like that. But with a public space in a public campus, uh, this speech is, I hate to say protected, Mm -hmm. which is unfortunate, but this is where, this is what brings us to the responsibility of our free speech. I feel like everybody has a responsibility to, if, uh, somebody is actually exercising their first amendment rights to spew out these, this hate speech, shall we call it, uh, the people around them have a responsibility not to listen, not to give them an audience. Yeah, that's definitely the best approach, I think. It, oh, Your damn coasters. We've got another one. Um, I can I can I can switch it out with something else. I think I might. This might be a little. Nah, it's fine. Ah, uh, well. Yeah, it, we'll add it for comic value. We will. It's going to give you something to wake up to. Uh, if you, in case this, in case this conversation is lacking anyone in any way, yeah, the the ignore it response is well. That's an interesting thought. Um, there is an argument that I have heard that okay, so now that we are having to deal with Nazis again, literal Nazis, literal actual Nazis, there is a hot debate over whether whether you should engage with that or not. And now, these days, that debate comes down to whether you're going to debate someone or punch them in the face. Mm. Just like, uh, j- j- just like a, a, a gut reaction to, 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 to do what you really feel needs to be done. But I think the other way to look at it is that there are two reactions to... Um, retrograde ideas like white supremacy and Nazism and 
um, you know, Leninism and things like that is like, should you ignore it or should you engage it? And one argument that I've seen recently is that what we've been doing has been ignoring it and that hasn't worked. We've basically ignored it to the point where it has festered under the surface of, and I hate the, 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 the terms political correctness and like freedom of speech almost has its own sort of a cliched, like when you hear it in a discussion, you already know what to think about the person who's saying it, but let's just stick with it. Uh, political correctness was almost an enforced politeness that didn't really mm. deal with the central issue of why are people drawn to those ideas and that it created a condition where it just had a, a chance to fester in secrecy. And then when you don't know what people believe and people aren't encouraged to say what they actually believe. And this is my idea of the responsibility of freedom of speech is that, and I think in the, in the pilot episode of this podcast, I kind of made this case is that one of the, one of the most important things for having a functional free society is that people are honestly t talking about what they believe with one another. And the only way that you can change anyone's mind is to know what they're actually what they're actually making the case for. And when provocateurs come around just saying whatever needs to be said to draw up, to rile up the biggest response, that's a sign that, thing, that the incentives are completely skewed. And so maybe we should have a conversation where we should be people, maybe not everybody should have an obligation to engage with every fucking Nazi that comes along <laughs> on their on their feed, uh, on their social media feeds, but that we shouldn't ignore the fact that people are drawn to these ideas. Yeah, we cannot. What do you think of that? We cannot ignore the problems. Yeah, and I think the problems need to be discussed, and likewise, we have a responsibility to talk about those issues. Yeah, um, but we we can't just go running down the street punching Nazis in the face for just opening their mouths. It's not how we can really solve our problems that it, it does nothing to defeat the underlying uh, principles that they are trying to purvey to the American public. Um, mm -hmm. We were talking about political correctness and um, actually there's a uh, sort of philosophical fallacy that pops up when talking about political correctness and what happens is let's say there is a term that is deemed not politically correct. It is replaced with a new term. That seems to be the solution is you replace an old term with a new term. Pretty soon that new term comes to mean the exact same thing as the old term. Yeah. So they throw that out and replace it. And it's just an endless cycle of, of language. And really it does nothing, absolutely nothing to combat the, uh, that underlying principle. Yes. Like a toilet's going to be a toilet, regardless if you call it a water closet or if you, you know, <laughs> you refer to it by a, a couple of dozen different names, the John. A hydraulic like, waste receptacle. Exactly. <laughs> it, it, it does nothing to change its actual function within a society. Yeah, see, see the collected works of the late George Carlin for, <laughs> for, a, for a lucid uh, lucid meditation on exactly that. 
that theme. That's very true. Yeah. No, I completely agree with that, that when you change the, the way of talking about something, it doesn't change the essence of the thing itself, and you're not really grappling with what um, what's really at the heart of the issue. It's a, In my mind, it's a way of dancing around the actual point at issue. Um, now, hmm, let's see. I want to take that to a slight extreme, and I would like your reaction to this. And I think I'm gonna. And I think Surprise I'm gonna, and alarm. And I think I'm gonna preface this with uh, last year or a little before. Uh, the timeline escapes me at the moment, but a while ago, sometime in the last year or two, uh, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu was giving a speech in Israel where he essentially laid at the feet of a Muslim leader during World War II the responsibility of giving Hitler the idea of destroying the Jewish people. Like, the way he presented it in the speech was... Um, he, he basically said that, like, during a 1942 meeting with uh, the Grand Mufti of... Mufti? Mufti? Anybody? Whatever you want. We're pronouncing it as Americans. Anybody who's seen the recent uh, season of Curb Your Enthusiasm knows exactly the problem I'm having right now. <laughs> but the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem during the 1940s was a, you know, an erstwhile ally, however you want to put it, of the Third Reich. And during a 1942 meeting where the Mufti visited Germany... Uh, Netanyahu claimed that Hitler was agonizing over what to do with all of these Jews, and he didn't really have a plan for anything. And then he put the words in the Mufti's mouth of just destroy them. Now, this is not only wrong in a moral sense, but it is also actually just, like, actually wrong. Yeah, it's a factually like, inaccurate statement. Like, anybody who understands the history behind uh, the Holocaust knows that that is a very easy <laughs> a very easy assertion to refute. And some of the coverage I saw didn't really grapple with the fact that it was a refutable fact, but more just sort of harped on the moral indignation of saying something like that. And I want to put it to you that even if you, if you were to encounter a Holocaust denier in the... And, and let me just clarify that I am not claiming that Benjamin Netanyahu is a Holocaust denier, but like someone on the same... Like somebody making a historical flub on the same... Like, like on a similar scale. We have a responsibility not just to ignore, but to take the time from time to time to refute those points. And it helps to be reminded of why we know. And, and, and that's exactly why. It helps to be reminded why we know that something is a refutable fact. And I'm not sure maybe you... We, do, do you have any reaction it, it to is that? A, I mean, it is a responsibility to refute. Yeah, that, that, uh, could, that could be a controversial statement. I mean, you in, have, in some circles. Provided it is historical no. fact. Yeah. It has to be backed up by evidence. Any claim that is refuted or any claim that's made has to be supported by evidence 
any claim to the contrary when it comes to any claim to the contrary that has, uh, you know, an argument that's already been well formed and mm -hmm. has supporting evidence, any claim refuting that also has to have supporting evidence. Yeah. Uh, so in this case, it's we have so much now. The Nazi Germany was very good at record keeping. Like they they yeah. were yeah. adamant about their file keeping systems, and they you know they logged and tracked every single person that went into or out of the uh, the concentration camps. Like they kept track of everything, and they were proud to do it. Uh, they were proud of, of that uh, almost bureaucratical prowess mm. that, that they had. Yeah. And thus we have all of this evidence that says, hey, this did not happen. And uh, we also have the uh, specifically with, with Netanyahu's claims, we have evidence of the contrary that suggests uh, the Grand Mufti had nothing to do with Hitler's plans, because these plans were... They were already in action they, by 1942. They were in yeah. action. They were up and running before 19... Yeah. Well before 1942. Yeah. And we have documented evidence of it. Yeah. And the what needs to be called out is when, when these people who make these uh, ridiculous claims provide very little evidence to support them... Uh, when they are presented with, if they present no evidence to support their argument, if they are presented evidence against their argument mm -hmm. and they refuse to change their outlook, mm -hmm. that is when, when they deserve to be called out. Yeah, I think at times we sort of settle on the idea of just providing the moral rebuke to ideas that are reprehensible, but we don't see the value in for the for the historical record. Isn't it? And, and here's the thing about freedom of speech and of debate and of argument generally, is that I think people don't fully appreciate the the fact that people don't change their minds in the moment. No, not they don't. really, not really. But when you're when, when you're going to the trouble of making especially a public argument, like. And, and that is the, the essence of debate, is you're not necessarily trying to change the mind of the person across the stage from you um, or across the coffee table from you if, if it's a private conversation. But anybody who might be listening in or may consume it in the future, it's going to be to their benefit. You're not, you're not trying to convince the other convinced person that you're talking to. You're trying to convince the unconvinced who might, who might pick it up. Right. And so there's a, I, I think that there's a, an an unappreciated value in going to the trouble publicly to make the case for things that we feel are are so well established that they that they defy re-explanation that this is a this is a completely settled idea why do i have to tell this white supremacist that you know refute their you know pseudoscientific race theories and all of these other things but like Every now and then, from time to time, we have to go to that trouble, and we're in, I think, a moment like that right now. I, I agree with that. We are in one of those trying moments mm. where we're beginning, we're starting to question things that uh, for years were held to be true, mm -hmm. and we're questioning it. Yeah. Which... It's in healthy. Some, it is. It's, it's very. It's a, healthy. It's a very healthy thing. Um, yeah, we shouldn't be like we shouldn't be worried about about the fact that we're 
that we're questioning these things. You know, I think it. Uh, if you look back at Germany in the the nineteen sixties, uh, you had a, this younger generation who wasn't involved in in World War Two. They were you know children when it was occurring, yeah, or babies. weren't even born or weren't <laughs> yeah. even born yet. And then all of a sudden, they are starting to in the sixties. They started questioning the the fascist past of Germany. It was something they that the adults didn't really talk about. And then it, it, it became like the elephant in the room. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were just like, hey, we need to discuss this. We need to talk about what the wrongs that we did in the past. Yeah. Because how else are we going to learn to be a better society? And that's something that uh, I think 1960s, 1970s Germany is a, a great spot to learn about uh, sort of coming to terms with one's own past. Yeah. Vergangenheitsbewältigung, that's the word that we brought up in, in, I think, the first episode. That That's exactly what that means, is the coming to terms with a, with a dark past, yeah. Germans have a great uh, knack for language. If they don't have a word for it, they take the words they know and squeeze them together into one big word. Yeah, compound words are an art form in the German language. Uh, I <laughs> completely agree with that. Uh, so, yeah, um, let's see. What else can we talk? So, so, so that gets back to. Um, sorry to cut you off there, but um, yeah, that, that that pretty much comes back to my my idea of the responsibility of we need to speak honestly with one another because I think that okay, so one of the counter arguments to what I'm saying that I've heard that usually gives me pause uh, is that you know why should a marginalized person have to go to the trouble? of debating someone who has abhorrent backwards views. And, you know, I've never had a good answer to that, but... I don't think... I, I don't have a good answer to that. And the reason is that there isn't a very good answer to that question specifically. Uh, no, it, it's an absolute terror that anybody has to be put in that position. But what I think is going on is now that we are living in a post-truth era, and, and the post-truth era, I think, predates the... Ooh, wait a minute. Uh, I forgot. I had my golf clicker across the room, but I'm going to need it. Although the, oh, post, although the post-truth era predates the Trump administration, click, take a drink. Mmm. Mmm. We've been living in this, in the society of what I call tactical dishonesty, where you just have to mouth the shibboleths that are necessary to get the best reaction. Now that we're living in those in this post-truth uh, era, where anything that you need to be true can be true as long as you're making a convincing-sounding case, a sophist kind of a thing. Um, now it doesn't matter what's actually true. Now it just matters what what presentation you can give and what what fervor you can you can have in making your case. Now we have to deal with that. That is when Nazis and totalitarians and authoritarians come crawling out of the woodwork. Now they don't have to shrink from the fact that they don't have a logical leg to stand on. And we're seeing a proliferation of those ideas now because we have essentially, uh, I think, abandoned 
pure honesty and the trust in one another that we're getting an honest account of our of our ideas and their ideas in one way or another that now they feel comfortable coming back out into society and if we bolstered the the norms of you know truth fact evidence all of these things that i feel are starting to lose their luster then they would not have the same um, appeal that, that they have. So if we go back to, uh, if it ever existed, but if we were to like reinforce those ideals, maybe we wouldn't have to deal with them in a we, sense. We do live in an era of post-truth. That, uh, there was actually a study done very, very recently uh, where scientists looked at the spread of fake news. Mm -hmm. They looked at... Uh, they pretty much took something like 800 articles just to see how fast they would uh, spread. And what they found was that the fake news, the shocking articles, the clickbait, spread a lot faster than the actual facts, mm -hmm. than the real news. Yeah. Um, and that goes along with the sensationalism that you find within the, uh, the media today is... Everybody's almost looking for a reason to be angry. Mm -hmm. uh, there's money in it. There is. There's yeah. money in it. it yeah. You know, scandals sell. It, yeah. it, there's a lot of money in it. And what it does is it clouds the ability of every, you know, everybody who's got a level head clouds their ability to get the facts, the actual facts. Yeah. Outrage it, sells. Like, I'd almost say that our, our media culture has turned certain forms of political expression into like commodities. Like, yeah, they have. Like their business plans, like outrage sells, you know? Yeah, yeah. that's one of the findings of the scientists actually said that uh, because of that, it got people angry when they saw this story, so they were more likely to share it. Mm -hmm. And uh, it just caught like wildfire these these... Uh, fake news stories, these actual fake news stories, not mm -hmm. just what the Trump administration oh, decides shit. to say. Well, mm. we're up to eight. Oh. oh, yeah. It's good stuff. It's delicious. Uh, what a delicious thing to do. Yeah, d <laughs> delicious. Talking about free speech and certain administrations that I don't want to say again. Um <laughs> But I think that uh, this post-truth era, I, I hope it ends soon, where we get away from the age of uh, yellow journalism, which has once again yeah. reared its its ugly head in American society. Yeah. Um, and, and we need to be interested in what is fact mm -hmm. and be willing to change our own opinions based upon those facts. Amen to that. Um I'm going to add to that, and speaking of the commodification of political discourse, the Constitution and the Bill of Rights set out a framework for protecting people from abuses by the government. But I think what we're going to see more and more of and this ties into our previous episode on American corporatism quite scrumptiously, 
oh, is, delicious. is that um, I think that the future threats to freedom of speech as... And this is... Now, yes, I think that the, the threat that we're really going to see to freedom of speech is going to be through private corporations who own the the platforms that we, we that we use and i i just want to add yeah i just want to add to this point that when we're talking about the first amendment yes we're technically talking about a legal concept but uh taking it back again a few episodes ago uh i'm a firm believer that every legal concept on a certain level is an expression of a value so what i think what we're really talking about here today is the cultural value of freedom of speech like this like, like yeah so that this ties right in yeah to the uh the concept of net neutrality there is uh, that yeah net neutrality so is this that, ties right in because but, that, but that's, still, yeah, that's still kind of the government like that's sort of a regulatory tech, thing it is regulating but it's regulating the corporations mm-hmm. um yeah what we're afraid of is uh pretty much corporate free speech mm. uh by putting in what's effectively a, a fast lane to the internet. Yeah. Uh, it's you're limiting other people's access to information. And if you limit their ability to access information, you're also limiting their ability to put out information. And thus, uh, these corporations are now, uh, put in the driver's seat of the first amendment. Mm, yeah. Uh, they are, uh, it's now, now becomes a question of, can they be trusted with the the internet, the collective knowledge, of the, <laughs> the collective knowledge of the human race? And uh, it's it's one of those things that it's important enough that we need to make sure that uh, that all of this information, the ability to give and receive information, is not clouded by any sort of money making scheme. Yeah. Uh, I feel like that's that's an entirely new show of uh, oh, dis- re- discussing net neutrality. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, yeah, yeah, I, 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 yeah, I definitely see the the point there that like the infrastructure of the internet can be affected by how by how that goes, and so you know, Spectrum or Comcast or any of the internet service providers who who might have you know, a reason to to prefer certain viewpoints over another that that's definitely something to worry about but i was getting at i'm I'm, I'm sorry yeah yeah there there was another legal argument that i found Mm. recently that i thought was hilarious um considering that net neutrality uh is now over uh the the fcc ruled against it yeah ajit pai made that so yeah yeah, the chairman what it what it effectively did it now makes the isps uh, in charge of the content of the internet. Mm. So if these ISPs wow, are nice. therefore in charge of this content, are they going to be held liable for child pornography that is on the internet? <laughs> Can they be as corporations, which due to our, our last episode where they now have free speech rights, are they now going to be held responsible for the content that is actually on the internet? Thus making every every member of that corporation a sex offender and has to be registered like like that's that's a legal question I, i'm curious as to the the answer to that um 
in, in a legalistic, you know, very yeah. sarcastic sense. Yeah, you, you technically got them on something. But like, yeah, it's, yeah. Um, but if we're going to decide that they have the responsibility of, uh, of carrying the flow of information, then are they really going, are they going to be held responsible for the content? Now, I think a clause like that really does open the door for selective enforcement. Like, mm-hmm. the, the, like that's the kind of thing that's, it's almost a loophole that's built in to say, like, you don't have to, you know, yeah, like you're not responsible for every single instance, but whenever it's, whenever it's convenient to you, you can, you can, <laughs> you can enforce that. But yeah, that's really interesting to think about. But I was actually talking a little more granular about that. Like there, that you're talking about the infrastructure. Gotta watch Out with it, man. Gotta, gotta, gotta watch Caddyshack soon. Uh, but the like, infra, like the infrastructure of net neutrality is one thing, but I was talking a little bit more about social media companies. Facebook, Facebook, Facebook Twitter, Google. Should they have a... So, okay. So the First Amendment is itself a legal concept. It is what it is all about what the government can and cannot do. But if we're talking about the the social value that free speech is, should Facebook, which like you know, let's take Facebook for instance, they finally learned after the 2016 election and the way that Russians like Russian intelligence laundered propaganda into our political culture the level of power that they have in our political system. And now they have an incentive to be a little more picky about how they how they privilege viewpoints in advertising and in um and you know content and everything like that. Is that something we should worry about? Like, should 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 Facebook have a veto, or should Twitter have a veto over people who are, you know, when they are earnestly engaging in in political speech it's, with with one another and between private citizens? It's a tough call on that one, simply because uh, yes, they are a private institution. Yeah, they're private. Uh, yeah, they, they are the private. Thing. We do not have to support them. But millions upon millions of people do. Uh, mm-hmm. They they go to Facebook every single day. They look at their friends' status updates. They look. Uh, they're just on there, and because they're on there, they are now targeted for um, advertisement. Mm-hmm. So regardless of if people go on there or not, uh, they will constantly be subjected to this advertising the advertising companies are going to you know pay money Mm. to facebook to get that advertising space and facebook is suddenly in this position where you have these sensationalist news stories being shared Mm -hmm. uh in the case of the 2016 elections they were being shared by uh russians like they were the Russians developed them and then unleashed them, the sensationalist stories which were shared, yeah. and it affected uh, people's voting habits. And that's, mm. that's really, that's, that's actually how, that's how the, uh, the Russians pretty much tried to hack our mm. elections. It was not through tampering with, actu- with real votes, they were tampering with people's outlooks. 
with their voting habits, not with not with the votes themselves. I'm going to push back a little bit on that because I'm not sure. <coughs> Gesundheit. Um, I'm not sure how, at this point, based on what we know, how much people's voting habits were actually changed is very hard to prove. But what I will grant you is that that propaganda laundering was very much designed just to fuck with us. Like now, now we don't trust one another quite as much. That that was a very key thing in the 2016 election is that the mainstream media and just the media in general was called into question. Mm -hmm. Like we, they threw up the red flags on every media source that disagreed with with certain viewpoints, and they pretty much said it's fake. Yeah. And it got you got people to mistrust everything that they see in the media. Mm-hmm. In certain senses, that's good that people are questioning, uh, questioning the facts, yeah, like where they came from, you know, who's behind it. But it also makes them subject to listen to more view uh, viewpoints that are similar to their own mm-hmm. that aren't based upon fact. It just seals off the echo chamber a little more, a, a, a little tighter. Right. It becomes yeah. an us and them. It's yeah. like, if you are not with us, you are against us. Mm. And if you don't fall in line with what we believe, you must be trying your damnedest to spread lies and hate mm. you know, all around in order to discredit us. And, yeah. and, and that is what we are seeing in, in today's uh, current culture, I would say, is yeah. we're seeing this, uh, this spread of misinformation. Indeed. Yeah. Let me take it another direction, though. And um, give me your reaction to this. Uh, let's say I go onto Facebook and I type up a, you know, a rant of some kind on some, on some contentious issue of the day. I can't even, can't even think of one at the moment. So there are too many to pick from. That's the problem. Yep. Uh, <laughs> but let's say I say something relatively controversial, but not necessarily uh, hate speech in any way. Um, and then someone, and I'm just going to assume that it's going to be something slightly like center right to right. Like I'm still, I still technically consider myself a bit of a conservative, but you know, I'm, I'm open. Uh, <laughs> but let's say I'm just like, I'm bravely making a case for something that I think is worth talking about. And then somebody comes along and decides that what I've said has crossed the line. And then they report my post the Facebook algorithm, and this is government by algorithm that we're seeing now in the social media oh, the companies. Computer machines. Uh, the, the the Facebook algorithm decides that you know this 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 reporting of my post is sufficient to lock out my account. Now it's it's one thing. Now it, it would be easy enough for me to appeal that, but should Facebook have the kind of that kind of power over? my communication with my friends my friends and my family like this isn't necessarily but like like somebody comes floating in hitting a tambourine and decides that <laughs> that i that, that i've crossed the line in some political way that like they have to make they have to take some kind of action like is, is that something that facebook should be it's able very to, true this yeah. crosses into the line of what i've always called corporate censorship yeah it's where the the people who are in charge of these very large companies uh, suddenly make the rules as to what we value and what we don't value. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I'd rather n- Facebook not have that type of power to silence. Uh, but at the same time, they're a private company. I, I mean, it's... Yeah, and the terms of use that we all sort of mindlessly hit agree on they're the biggest lie. That's the biggest lie in the universe is saying, yes, I have read and agreed to the terms of service. It is. And here's the thing about that. I I, I never thought of it until a, f- a few months ago that we're technically signing a contract every time. Like this is th- this is one nation under contract when we're talking about the terms of service that we all sort of, yeah, mindlessly click I agree on. Nobody ever reads those. Nobody has, like, very few people about, who are... About three dozen companies could own my soul right now, yeah. and I would not know. Not many people have the legal, like, the legal training to understand the implications of the things that are in those terms of use. But you are technically, however you, you know, justify it to yourself, you are technically signing a contract when you do the terms of service. And so if you're not familiar with what's in that that web page that you're surreptitiously like hitting agree on uh, that that really affects your rights and you know ultimately facebook does have the right to to do something like that they have they have the the right to censor they have the legal right to censor but do they have the moral right you're not wrong you're just an asshole (laughs) (laughs) yeah they have the legal right but but we have to talk about the moral responsibility that they have yeah that they have and that we have and 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 that's the thing is that um in this hypothetical where I've said something controversial on Facebook, and this has never happened to me, by the way. Like, I, I have enough... You're very vanilla I, when it comes to well, your Facebook I, posts. I, well, he, I've got a few things about that. Like, first of all, I haven't posted much on my personal Facebook in a while because I've, I've come to think of it as... You, Facebook and most social media gives you the, the, the ability to call a press conference... <laughs> and so I've sort of like thought more and more about what warrants a press conference, and so I, I don't I don't do personal posts so much. But I, I I've written political stuff before, <coughs> and I still okay, bless you, and I still occasionally operate my my blog dancaves.com, But um, in all of the things that I've ever written, I've written some some pretty controversial things. I've never had that happen. I've got even my my left wing and liberal friends. They're they're all. You know they're all able to to do what is expected in a free society, which is if they disagree, they're going to tell me, and they're going to tell me like adults, and I'm going to respond like an adult, and that is the ultimate responsibility. Is we're we're dealing fairly with one another. We're not know? breaking out into fist fights <laughs> over, over this, which is really hard to do over Facebook. But <laughs> wow. <laughs> Wow, your friend just sent you a bitch slap over uh, via <laughs> via internet. Sucker punch. Just, just wow. hit the sucker punch button. Sucker punch. Just yeah, right to the face. Uh, although wow. I'm, I'm going to add this. Hey, Mr. Zuckerberg, if you're listening to this, add more negative responses to the like, like the reaction part oh, the of, reaction of Facebook. Like all you need is a middle finger. They're Just... all yeah, they're all they're all very positive or like empathetic. I would like something like a disagree reaction. Like something respectful but something that voices like we res- push like digital pushback from people. We, we respectfully you know? dis- disagree. Yeah. Res- I want a respectfully disagree button. 
it's not yeah exactly it's not all sunshine and rainbows and poppies and ice cream cones you know we should vegan diets we should <laughs> hey there's hey there's some delicious vegan food out there. i don't, will say don't that vegan food can it. be really good uh one of the one, one of the best chilies i've ever had Vegan was, chili was a lentil vegan chili, like, yeah. and it mimics. Yeah, it mimics. I'm not like going to knock beef. vegan food. Yeah. I couldn't live on it, but no, it, it, oh, no. it makes some really good food. It is, uh, and, and so hey, uh, anything else we want to talk about here? Oh boy! Oh, there it goes again. Oh Jesus! Well, that's the sound. The Illuminati have exercised their censorship veto over our conversation and have sounded the alarm for the moment of clarity. You ever, you ever feel, felt repressed before? <laughs> Not really. Neither I mean, have I. Like, <laughs> I'm I mean, a white middle class guy. I mean, I. I it's, it's, yeah, I'm, I'm just. It's gonna, hard to feel repressed. Yeah, you, you really have to reflect on that. But hey. Yeah. My friends, my dear listeners, JT, it's been a wonderful time talking to you, uh, and we're going to have a few more conversations before you leave here, and we're going to... I think we will. We're going to have to... We're going to have to take it easy, though. Maybe... Yeah. It's... uh, (laughs) St. Patrick's Day really did us in, but... uh, Well... Uh, no, No mortal human being should have to withstand intoxication like that. It really is. How are we still living? We might be gods. Just might. I, uh, man, it's yeah. tough. It's tough. And that's a blasphemy on the level that is <coughs> Gesundheit, that is protected by the First Amendment. So That, that is very true. Um, yeah, and we'll have to come back to the religion question in a future episode. But, uh, but until then, um, uh, yeah. we'd like to thank... Uh, we'd like to thank our intro music yeah. uh, from... Kevin. <laughs> yep, Kevin McLeod. You just Kevin uh, McLeod. Yep, you will have thank heard. Thank you, Kevin. Yeah, thank you, Kevin. You will have heard Dark Sea Land by Kevin McLeod. You can find that and more royalty free music at incompetech.com. Look for the spelling in the show notes. Uh, and once again, if you disagreed, agreed, or well, anything else about what we just discussed, or love you, mail, hate mail, sultry love letters, uh, just send it all. Uh, to uh, cocktail party congress at gmail.com. Indeed. And until then, it is time for our moment of clarity, the only sober section of this entire show. Indeed. And may I just say, as a closer, in vino veritas, JT. In vino veritas, Dan. Amen. Listeners, undoubtedly, You have seen or read in the news the current wave of student protests that are sweeping the nation. I want to address these protests, not on their aims, but rather on their actions. Unlike many supporters of the Second Amendment to the Constitution, I cannot bring myself to tell these student protesters that their actions are wrong. Quite the contrary, these students are, in fact, learning one of the most important lessons in civics that anyone could possibly have. This lesson is about taking action. Some may call it nonviolent civil disobedience. Others may call it mere rabble-rousing. But I prefer to call it a prime example of the execution 
the right of peaceful assembly guaranteed by the First Amendment of that same Constitution with the ultimate goal of bringing about sociopolitical change. This is a lesson that should not be confined to the walls of a classroom spoken of only in hypotheticals or past examples, but rather this lesson must be learned by taking action, by being part of the history. These sorts of actions brought about the social change in our own republic by actively rejecting the old ways of segregation and establishing the great movement towards civil rights. These movements were the ones that brought the British Empire to its knees in India and gave us some of the best lessons in all of history. To these students I must say this, never let someone tell you that your argument is invalid because you are too young and don't know what you're talking about. Present your evidence and demand that your critics do the same. People tend to forget that our republic was founded by the bold and the young. Social change can be brought about by anyone with the courage and steadfast resolve and dedication to do so. Shame on your critics that attack you as a person rather than the argument that you present. These are the critics that are much weaker than you, so much so that they are beneath you. If the opportunity presents itself to bring about the changes that you wish to see in the world, then seize it with all of your might and knowledge and take action. There are those that think you should not leave your school for such protests, but I say leave. Leave the classroom for an even greater lesson. A lesson that cannot be founded in a book, but one that will be written about for future students to read in their classrooms. Become a page in the history books, and don't let anyone tell you to stay seated and keep your eyes upon the page. Your eyes should be upon the opportunity that is in front of you. To the critics of this movement that deride these students as being too young and ignorant, I say this, if the younger generation is made up of snowflakes, then winter is here. If you wish to debate them, then come forward and present your evidence. As Christopher Hitchens once put it, what can be asserted without evidence can be dismissed without evidence. Do not attack the students, but rather engage with them. Attack their arguments, not their age or their persons. To do otherwise is shameful and not at all constructive. Finally, to both sides I must say this. Take the time to think about the consequences. I urge you, do not take any rash steps that cannot be rescinded. Case precedent found to limit a constitutional clause could result in limits being applied to the entire Constitution, and not just the Second Amendment. Think before acting. Think responsibly. But when acting, take no prisoners and let your swords be your minds. The Republic still stands.